Metro TV will start in one minute. Good afternoon. Uh, this is the regularly scheduled meeting of the Government Oversight Audit and Appointments Committee. Um, I'm Councilwoman uh, Cindy Fowler, and I'm joined by my Vice Chair, Kevin Kramer. We are also joined um, virtually by Councilwoman Benson Stewart, I'm um, Stewart Benson, uh, Councilwoman Donna Purvis, Councilman Pat Mulvihill, um, Kumar Rashad, and Scott Reed, and Dr. Um, Barbara Shanklin, did I miss anybody? And Councilman Rick Blackwell, Dr. Rick Blackwell. And in chambers, we're joined by um, Ben Reno, Reno Weber and uh, Councilman Dan Syme. And I think that's it. Looks like we've got a full house. Okay, so um, we've got, I think, three appointments and then um, a discussion at the end with an overview of the retirement fund uh, in between. So the first item, um, would you read the? This meeting is being held pursuant to KRS 61.826 and Council Rule 5A, Ren and Pool. Thank you, Ms. Bennett. Okay, and so um, the first item, uh, it, we're gonna hold off until the end. Item number two is AP032223 PJ, appointment of Paul Johnson to the Criminal Justice Commission. Term expires December 31st, 2024. Do I hear a motion? Motion, sign. Thank you, Purvis. Thank you, property move before us. And can, I'm sorry, Althea Jackson, please. Hi, Althea Jackson, Mayor Greenberg's office. We are asking for the appointment of Paul Johnson. Uh, Mr. Johnson will be filling a seat due to a vacancy. Mr. Johnson is a 60 year plus um, resident of Louisville Jefferson County out of District 16, has a wealth of um, experience uh, from the United States Secret Service um, to Papa John's uh, Chief of Global Security to his own consultant company. So we are asking for him to be appointed uh, to fill this vacancy on the Criminal Justice Commission. Thank you, Ms. Jackson. Are there any questions from the committee? I see none. Uh, this um, can be a voice vote. All those in favor say aye. 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 And knows by like sign. Uh, we're also joined by Councilman Pat Mulvihill and Councilwoman uh, Jennifer Chapel. Um, so this will go to the consent calendar. <clears throat> um, item number three is AP032223 DB, appointment of Daniel Beeler to the um, Commission for Persons with Disability. Term expires December 12, 2023. Do I hear a motion? Motion read. Second, Purvis. Properly moved and seconded. Uh, Ms. Jackson. This uh, appointment is for the Commission for Persons with Disabilities, and it had to be filled with a representative from a regional college or university. And so Ms. Beeler fills this uh, requirement. She is employed by the University of Louisville Traeger Institute. She is a social worker program coordinator. She is at a District 10. 
She is um, very excited uh, to be considered for this position. Uh, this position and so we are asking for her appointment to fill this prescribed seat um, on the commission for persons with disabilities thank you miss jackson um, are there any questions from the committee i uh, see none uh, this is an appointment um, that can be voted on with a voice vote all those in favor say aye aye aye, aye. Uh, knows by like sign Okay, so that also passes and we'll go to the consent calendar. The next item is RP032223 KJ, reappointment of Kelly Jones to the Downtown Development Overlay District. Term expires January 31st, 2026. Do I hear a motion, please? Motion, Purvis. Second, Chapel. Properly moved and seconded, Ms. Jackson. So this is for reappointment to the Downtown Development Review Overlay Board. This is for a prescribed seat. Um, Ms. Jones is filling the prescribed seat of a landscape architect. So we are asking for, she's been a great board member, and so we are asking for her reappointment to this board. Thank you, Ms. Jackson. Um, are there any questions from the committee? Seeing none, this uh, item can be a voice vote. All those in favor say aye. 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 Nose by like sign. Uh, this will pass and go to the consent calendar. Um, let's see. The next item is zero dash, I'm sorry, O dash zero four two dash two three an ordinance amending the Metro Louisville Metro Code of Ordinances second uh, section 32.130 regarding the administration of the policeman's retirement fund. Do I hear a motion? Anyone? Can I Secondary. Thank you. Properly moved and seconded is before us. I believe that there is someone here to speak to this. Um, Bob Swope. Sorry, I butchered your name. Thank you. I'm Bob Schweppe. I'm the administrator for the uh, Louisville Police Retirement Fund. It is a, uh, as you all probably know, a terminal fund since uh, the uh, police officers today and, and since 1985 all are have become members of the state system. The um, ordinance amendment that we have is to try to uh, broaden the uh, field of people who can serve on the board. Uh, the aging population of the board, uh, our president is now 97, the average age is 85 of the members. Many of them are not in a position to serve and this ordinance would allow us to appoint or for a vacant position and then later be elected. It would allow the election of a descendant of a member or their power of attorney or someone who is in a capacity to uh, serve and uh, has a vested interest in making sure that people still receive their benefits. Um, Councilman Melville Hill, did you uh, have, uh, would like to speak to this? Uh, certainly, uh, as a member of this board by being, by being on this Metro Council, we have an appointee and I have served, I think, uh, for most of the time that I've been, been here. Uh, you know, it, it's important, as we all know, to have quorums and I think uh, with an aging population that have a lot of different um, uh, needs and sometimes troubles to, to meet that quorum need, th this is the reason for it. Uh, as described by Bob, uh, it's an aging population. And so this would alleviate uh, maybe, maybe the difficulty of, of, of meeting quorum. They do meet monthly. I think it's the third Monday at... Um, Bob, correct me, I, I, I go to most of those meetings, I believe it's at 11 a.m. 
And so uh, this is just a measure so that they can continue to do business. And I support it. Thank you. Uh, thank you for that explanation. Uh, Councilman Kramer. Thank you, Madam Chair. Um, I'm just curious, so how many folks are still impacted by this? And this is a fund that you are administering. How, how much revenue is left in the fund? There's, uh, well, first of all, there's 75 members that are still benefiting uh, at some point in, in, uh, from the benefits. There is approximately, uh, I'm gonna say about five and a half million in the fund balances. Wow. And how recently has the most, how recently is the, how recent is the most recent of those 75? And when did that most recent person? Pass away? No, start, so is the, are the benefits largely going to widows? Yes. Are the benefits there, going to retired officers? There are 19 officers that are still living that are receiving benefits. And how long ago is the most recent retiree? I would say five or six years okay. ago. He was, in 85, almost all the officers left the fund and went to the state fund. There was one officer who did not leave that retired about four or five years ago, six years maybe. Okay, so he, he will be in the fund Yes. For a period of time. Okay. Are there any other questions from the committee? I don't see anyone Thank in you. queue. Sorry. I don't know if you were done. Um, so um, this is an ordinance um, requiring a uh, roll call vote. Councilwoman Dr. Shanklin? Yes. Committee Member Rashad? Yes. Committee Member Purvis? Yes. Committee Member Blackwell? Yes. Committee Member Rena Weber? Present. Committee Member Reed? Yes. Committee Member Benson? Yes. Madam Chair, you have 10 yes votes and one present vote. Thank you so much. So this also will go to the consent calendar. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you. I'm, I'm sorry, it has to go to old business. Okay. Okay, so um, item number six is being held. So now we're going to go back to number one, which is <clears throat> a special discussion, ID 23-0372, uh, corrections investigation final written report update from David Beyer with the FBI, Louisville Metro Department of Corrections. So I hear a motion, or do I need a motion? <laughs> I don't guess I do. Don't need a motion, okay. Uh, Mr. Byer, thank you for being here. Thank you, Madam Chair. Uh, I'm appreciative of the opportunity to be here today. And I was told that I have about 15 minutes to talk. And so I'm going to try to condense uh, my, my written report, which I'm hoping to get out in the next week or so, uh, is at 300 pages. So to go through 300 pages okay. today would... Uh, be rather time consuming. Yeah, can, can I stop you right there and yes. ask you to identify yourself, please? I'm for sorry. The record. Thank I'm you. David Beyer, and I've been hired by the Metro Council to conduct an investigation of Metro Corrections. Thank you. So, as, as you know, this was an investigation initiated by the Metro Council as a result of uh, numerous deaths at the jail. Uh, there was a lot of media uh, attention uh, directed towards the jail, and then also the uh, corrections FOP was very uh, vocal about the problems at the at the jail. So, um, an, in, uh, an investigation was initiated. I started this uh, actually, I think it was last April or May. Uh, during that course of time, I've interviewed 60 people or or more. 
includes the executive staff of the current administration, the prior administration, uh, a multitude of employees, both current and former, and then other jail administrators across the country. In addition, I interviewed uh, a group of inmates, both male and female, uh, which uh, that was really uh, insightful and helpful. Uh, I've made five visits to the jail, and, and the purpose of those visits was to uh, conduct an assessment of the facilities, uh, look at the procedures and the protocols that were being used, and during, that, uh, during those visits, I had many informal discussions with employees that I met along uh, the hallways and in the control rooms. I've made three visits to the training academy, and the purpose of that, again, was to assess the facility, uh, sit in on uh, recruit classes and in-service classes, which, again, was very helpful. I also visited the Old County Jail that I'll mention in, in a little bit. And then we have, or I have, along with uh, two forensic nurses that I hired, reviewed thoroughly the death reports on nine of the inmates that uh, died. Um, and so that's a, a lot of what I've done. Uh, and the issues that I've reviewed are on this screen. I'm not gonna read each and every one of them. And again, to go through each of these issues would be, I would be here for a couple of hours. Um, so I'm gonna try to be succinct and get to the point and, and tell you what I've found. Uh, my primary findings are that uh, the prior leadership was, uh, had some shortcomings. Of course, they were up against uh, COVID and uh, civil disobedience in downtown Louisville. Uh, nevertheless, uh, Good leadership can overcome that. Uh, you think of all the military leaders that have been faced by difficult times with few personnel, they've been able to uh, push through and be victorious. So uh, the mayor, uh, former mayor, uh, brought in Director Cullins. Uh, my experience with him is he's been a great new leader for the organization. And I'll talk more about that in a minute. Another issue that uh, was talked about quite a bit is the inadequate staffing, and there is no doubt that staffing is an issue, and I'll talk more about that in a minute. One of the other things that uh, I have found that um, I know Director Collins is trying to address, and that is the failure to adhere to basic security protocol, or what uh, Director Collins and I refer to as Corrections 101, or basic corrections uh, protocols. Uh, part of that's due to uh, what happened during COVID, Everybody was told to stay away from the inmates, uh, don't have contact with them. New uh, recruits coming out of the academy, that's their paradigm of how to operate. And after COVID uh, was under control, uh, those restrictions se seem to linger. And still there's some uh, people that are still operating under that protocol. Uh, took a close look at the medical piece, and like at uh, Metro Corrections, there are a lot of dedicated, hardworking people there. Um, but I did see a number of things. The, uh, as I said earlier, the report on the medical piece is about 69 pages in length. So uh, there are a lot of aspects of that covered at, at the end. Uh, there needs to be better coordination and communications between the medical staff and corrections officers. Sometimes there's a little friction between them. Uh, certainly the facility is inadequate for the medical people. Uh, st staffing issues for uh, WellPath, which is the medical provider, are similar to, to the corrections department, and that is it's very difficult to get people to work at a jail. And they're up against uh, private hospitals that uh, have a very nice environment in which to work. They offer bonuses, uh, sign-on bonuses. So uh, it's difficult for them to get help, and, and that is a problem here at Metro Corrections. Now, as I went through the death records, uh, certain things uh, seemed to be common issues in the um, reports that I was reading. I truly believe, and I'm gonna get into it again in more detail, I truly believe that most of these incidents could have been prevented had we have a, had a better jail, one that's called a direct su supervision model. Uh, there are many instances where what transpired could have been observed 
by corrections officers in a direct supervision model. And again, I'll talk a little more about that. The lack of sp space, uh, that's problematic for the jail at times. There, there were two instances, and, and this is something that is very important also to consider, is that there were two instances where cameras in the cells recorded, uh, in one instance, uh, an inmate uh, taking drugs, Another camera uh, saw an inmate coming out of a, sh a bathroom, stumbling, obviously um, having problems that were precipitated by drugs. Those went undetected because there's so many cameras for the people currently uh, in the control rooms to monitor. And, and that's one of the things I brought up at the interim report is that to uh, Director Cullen's credit, he's installed or is going to install cameras in all single cells. It's a great idea. But as I walked around the, the jail, each control room has minimum of two, two big monitors. And on those monitors, uh, people are watching 40 to 60 cameras. And when I went into each control room, I asked the person monitoring the cameras, how many cameras in total do you, are you responsible for? What was interesting is nobody could tell me the total number that they were responsible for. So what they had to do is to tell me the answer, pull up each different uh, screen, and many of them are responsible for 100 or 120 cameras. And so it's a great idea to put more cameras in, but if you don't have somebody looking at the cameras, it's not going to help you any. And as I said, in two instances of the deaths that have occurred here, Cameras had, were installed, had they been monitored, we probably could have saved the lives of those two people. And I get back to what I'm going to talk about at length here in a minute, is the facility. The, the facility we have is based on such old technology, and it creates such problems, and it's going to continue to create problems. Uh, another thing, getting back to the uh, Corrections 101 uh, issue, is that in every one of these cases, there were errors in terms of uh, protocol. There currently is a sheet that goes up by each cell or dorm whereby the corrections officer has to go by a minimum of each hour, note that he was there or she was there, and any specific findings. In all of these cases, there was evidence that that wasn't done on a timely basis, or some of the entries were falsified. And that can be corrected by, again, emphasis of Corrections 101, but also going to technology. And I know Director Collins said that he is moving towards a technology where when the uh, corrections officers go by a key fob or some type of electronic uh, device records that the officer was there. So there's no fabricating, I was there at such and such a time, that device will capture what time the officer was there. And that, that is technology that has been around for a long time, for a long time, and we're finally getting that, which, in my opinion, is a shortcoming of leadership in the past. So much of what I'm seeing as I look at everything that I've looked at is the leadership was either bogged down with daily minutia or lacked the vision to look forward to what needed to be done and seize upon technology that was readily available. And then finally, as I mentioned earlier, the staffing in the medical piece and the uh, equipment that they have uh, is inadequate. Now, one of the things I want to point out is that Over the past 15 years, over the past 15 years, there have been a total of 12 suicides. And if you look at this chart that I just put up, on the average, there may have been one, usually just one uh, incident, whether it's a suicide or an overdose, and in many instances, none over the past 15 years. And then all of a sudden, in the past several years, we have this huge increase. And Again, I think part of it's attributable to the COVID, but even during COVID, basic 
security uh, protocol has to be followed. The jail is running a housing facility with people that have been charged with crimes. Many of them are uh, potentially violent and they need to do their job and, and that fell off and I think part of it's due to COVID. I think part of it's uh, due to initial training I issues and then follow-up uh, in-service training issues. So there is a huge departure from the past. Can I interrupt you yes. there and ask you if staffing was in, in any way responsible? Y yes, ma'am. That, that, that's another issue. Uh, again, staffing is a big issue here. And had they, I, I think what may have happened in some of these instances where people didn't come around every hour like they're supposed to, is they were just bogged down doing so many other things. And, and one of the things that, uh, again, I, I could talk all evening, uh, I was astounded at the duties that each corrections officer has during their shift. Uh, Daniel Johnson, the president of the FOP, gave me this list. There are 15, 16 important tasks that they have to do, take people to the doctors, uh, take people to the court, uh, pass out razors, collect razors, I mean, just a multitude of things. And f to expect them to do that uh, one hour roundabout is, is difficult for the staffing that they have. So you are absolutely correct. Better staffing would help tremendously also. Now, Director Collins has done so much since he's been here. He's been here just less to, than a year. Today he gave me a three-page document of all the different things that he has done. That will be included in my report. He's brought in a, uh, what I think is, is a truly professional executive management team that are doing an excellent job. When I've met with him, he's extremely passionate about what he's doing. He puts in long days, and I'm not gonna denigrate the prior administration, but Director Collins and his executive staff are what you would hope to have running a facility like this. So I commend him for all that he has done. Uh, it made, he's made great strides. But here's one thing that's troubling. If you look at this chart, over the past year since Director Collins came in, and again, a lot of the things that he started was tracking incidents and different issues in the jail, and here's one uh, example. He began tracking the use of Narcan. And if you look at this chart, since last April, last April, they have used Narcan on 69 people. 69 people. Now, when, when we say that there have been 13 deaths, you got to think about it. That number could have been much greater, but for the fact that they have Narcan and have been using that. But it, again, highlights an issue that we still have, that we need to get control of con uh, the contraband in this uh, facility and Again, I think the facility itself creates some of these problems. Staffing creates problems, uh, training issues. Many of these issues that I will talk in greater detail in my written report. One of the things in, in the initial phases of my investigation when I talked to uh, management, uh, like I said, prior and current, I heard from the prior administration that jail deaths were increasing across the country. And it was told to me, quote, it's happening everywhere. And I'm gonna give you a little bit of David Byer opinion. That's a defeatist attitude. A good leader can overcome difficult issues and to take the position that it's happening everywhere Again, it's a defeatist attitude, not a good leadership uh, uh, setting. And the fact is, is it wasn't happening everywhere. And this chart shows you specifically, next county over, Oldham County, no suicides or overdoses in 20 years. Now granted, they're a little bit smaller institution, but the concept is the same. You're housing people, you have to make sure that they're searched properly. 
You need to have good observation of the cells. Uh, Lexington, about the same uh, inmate population. They've only had three overdoses in 23 years. And I also canvassed other jails throughout the country. One of them was the Washoe County, uh, Nevada jail. Again, 1,100 inmates. They've had no overdoses in five years. So for somebody to sit and tell me that it's happening everywhere, that's incorrect. Now, the, th the other thing that I want to stress with this chart, you know what all three of these jails have in common? They are direct supervision facilities. They're newer facilities where the corrections officers at their posts, like if I'm a control room officer, I can see everybody in this room and what they're doing. I don't have to look at cameras and wondering what they're doing down the hall and around the corner. And that's one of the things that I, you know, am going to keep stressing tonight. These are perfect examples of having the proper facility that helps prevent the problems that we're having. I know many of you have visited our jail. It's very antiquated. It's run down. It's not healthy for the inmates. And, more, and similarly, it's not healthy for our, our employees. That impacts recruiting, it impacts retention. So many areas don't have windows. And as a human being, I don't care if you're, you're arrested for a crime, you deserve to see some sunlight. And many places in this facility, you do not. And again, that's true for the inmates as well as the employees. And to work in these conditions, no wonder we can't get enough people to work here. I mean, all you'd have to do is walk through this facility and say, no, nope, I'm not working here. I'm going to go to Wendy's and make $16 an hour. Here's some of the working conditions for our corrections employees. Mental health incarceration. Again, I'm going to get on my editorial soapbox for a minute. Over the years, there has been a myriad of ways of handling people with mental health issues. Long time ago, we had a lot of mental hospitals where we institutionalized people. People, We had one facility here in Louisville called Central State Hospital. And I'm going to tell you a little personal story. When I was a young man in college and law school, I was a volunteer fireman for the Middletown Fire Department. Central State Hospital was in our fire jurisdiction, and I made many runs there. And I walked around that facility. And I'll tell you that I would rather be staying at Central State Hospital than Louisville Metro Corrections. So we've got mental health patients that are staying in facilities that are not conducive to helping them with their problems. Here's what Central State used to look like. 1906, look at that big dining hall with big windows. 1906 large living quarters with windows. Here again, large dining areas for the patients to have their meals with big windows. Now, let's see how we've progressed over the years. This is what we're doing currently with people that have mental health issues. 20% of the jail population are people with mental health issues, and that's very true across the country. I don't think we've improved the quality of life for people who have mental health issues. Put somebody in, uh, one of the inmates told me, he said, you know what? If you don't have mental health issues when you get here, you will on the way out. And I guarantee it. Now let's contrast that with what other cities are doing. Nashville, prime example. They developed a, a behavioral care center. I think some of you went down to see that. It's a grand idea. They put people in this facility that have mental health issues, and my report will go into detail what they do. Here's Dallas. Here's their mental health facility and their medical care facility. Tremendously different than what we subject people to. And not only the inmates, again, but think about working in this environment vis-a-vis -vis what our corrections officers are required to do on a daily basis. Now, the implications of staying with what we have 
are potentially severe to this community. There could be civil liability by uh, inmates bringing lawsuits. Here's an example, federal district court case where the judge found that the facilities were inadequate and mandated 64 pages of corrective action, 64 pages. U.S. Department of Justice civil rights investigation. I think this community is very familiar with that. In fact, when I went on the Department of Justice website, our city's police department is number one on the list. And I don't have to tell you what it means to have the Department of Justice come in here and look at our corrections department. It is tremendously time consuming, it's tremendously expensive, and you lose so much control, so much control over what you do and how you do it. And so my, I'm telling you, a new jail facility is something that needs to be done. It's been talked about for years, talked about for years, and I'm just here to tell you that's what needs to be done. Here are a couple of examples of modern jails. See how they're open and the, the officers can see everything that's going on in there. And they've also shown that these types of facilities, the inmates are, if you, if you take a human being and you coop them up into a little cell, it's like putting animals into a cage. And our jail cells hold 20 to 24 people, supposedly, and on my walk-arounds, there were 35 and 40 people in these dorms sleeping on concrete floors. Staffing and recruiting, those are big issues. One of the things in the recruiting piece, we need to get some more personnel there. I know personnel is, is a staffing shortage, or staffing shortage is a big issue, but we need to get people on the ground, getting people into this facility. And one of the things we are not doing is that we're not capturing data on what recruiting techniques are working for us. Uh, we can send people to all the job fairs at colleges we want, but if we're not getting applicants out of those efforts, we're wasting our time. And so there needs to be a process. I don't care if it's job fairs, going to colleges, um, going to army bases, whatever you're doing, we need to have data. Is this getting people into, into the organization? Um, one other thing regarding recruiting, the human uh, resources director, Juanice Tunstall, wonderful lady, hardworking lady. She has herself 12 or 13 different responsibilities and she is part of the recruiting team. She actually goes out and does the physical ability tests on new applicants. So we have an executive, she has an executive position and she's going out and timing people on a run. She doesn't need to be doing that. We need to get some people to help her with that, such as maybe the training staff could do that. I know I'm getting close on wrapping up here, but one of the issues I, I wanted to make sure I had the opportunity to touch on because I think it's very important, and that's sexual harassment. As I said, I've interviewed over 60 people and every interview I asked a question, do you think sexual harassment is a problem here at Corrections? There wasn't one person that ever said, no, it's not a problem. I got the answer, yes, and always the caveat, but it's just friendly banter. And it's a way that we decompress and de-stress. And that's problematic to have a culture like that and some of the cases that I've looked at, people pulling out their penis, groping women, and I'm not saying that everybody does that, they don't. There are so many good employees here at Corrections, wonderful, passionate people, but for somebody to think that they can do that on the job, there's gotta be something wrong either with the recruiting of people, training of people, or the culture that allows something like that to happen. Another piece of the sexual harassment that was very troubling for me is Director Collins, again, doing yeoman's work. He and uh, Matt Golden, the former uh, public chief, um, 
and a county attorney put together a new, uh, more robust sexual harassment policy. And I so commend them for that. But you know what? You can have the most robust, the best well-written document, but if it's not followed or enforced, it's useless. I asked every employee that I talked to, have you had training on sexual harassment? And the answer was, oh yes, since Director Collins came in, we had a mandatory sexual harassment. And I said, well, how long in length was that training? 30 minutes. Did you have uh, role playing? No, we did not. Did you have a test? No, we did not. And then here's the big question I asked everyone. What's your major takeaway from that training? And you know, I got a blank stare from many people. I had some people say, oh, we already knew that. I had somebody else say, oh, they're just trying to scare us. And I hate to do the next thing I'm going to say. I don't like having to say it because it doesn't feel good to me to say this. But when I asked the training staff these questions, what's the major takeaway? I was hoping to hear sexual harassment is a problem and we're not going to condone it and we're going to do everything at the training academy to prevent it from happening. Instead, I heard, which is friendly banner, um, couldn't tell me a major takeaway and that was disappointing to me. The people that are supposed to be ingraining in the population of this organization that sexual harassment is a problem and cannot be condoned. Again, I, I was perplexed why they wouldn't have immediately said what I just articulated earlier. So I think we need to, Director Collins has a task ahead yet to reinforce with all of his employees from top to bottom that there's a culture that will, will change and we're not gonna tolerate it. Now, Director Collins told me today that he has fired uh, two employees for violations of the new policy. So that's a wonderful thing. But the number of people I've interviewed, to get that answer back, the answers back that I got, for me was very troubling. Finally, Director Collins is spot on. We need to get back to basics. There's one th other thing I want to point out, accountability. That was another refrain that I heard from so many people. There's no accountability. Why should I work hard when this other person here calls in sick all the time? Why should I go check the doors and be vigilant and diligent when this other person sits, sits down, doesn't do his or her job? So I thought, well, I'm gonna check on that. So these are, these are very hard to see. This is a spreadsheet of disciplinary actions over the past several years. And each of those colors, band, there are bands of colors where it changes, it's a different person. So if you look at those bands of big red blocks, that's the disciplinary action for one individual, for that one individual. Now, what, what message does that send to other employees if a person is disciplined that many times but keeps their job. So again, there is, to his credit, so much that Director Collins has done, but there's more to, more to do. And again, my, my report is extremely lengthy. I could go on and on. Um, I just, again, want to thank Director Collins and his staff for all the help that they gave me, uh, in particular, uh, the gentleman Sergeant Tim Derringer. He was instrumental in getting so much of this information for me, uh, took me on the tours of all the facilities I visited, and he was tremendously helpful. And then finally, uh, President Daniel Johnson from the FOP was very helpful in illuminating me and educating me on so much of what the FOP does and how it interfaces with the uh, corrections uh, executive management. And I'll take a break here. Thank you very much for that. You're welcome. Okay. Um, Councilman uh, Piagentini. 
Thank you, Madam Chair. Uh, thank you, Mr. Byer, for being here and, and, and going through this report with us. Uh, I'm looking forward to seeing the, the full version, I'm, I'm sure, and, and digging into some of the specifics. Um, a, a couple quick statements that I have a question. First of all, I, I do want to acknowledge uh, Director Collins. Uh, I, similar to your experience, uh, as soon as he came on board, I saw immediate changes, um, both in his leadership style as well as uh, the technology he brought to bear uh, and implemented immediately, which I think turned the tide uh, very rapidly on some of the deaths that we were having in the jail. Uh, so I want to compliment on him on that. Uh, I want to extend that compliment uh, to some other folks in the room. Uh, acknowledge uh, Deputy Mayor David James, so again, new leadership, people that have experience know what's going on, uh, and I'm looking forward to seeing uh, what Deputy Mayor James is gonna bring to the table on this. I know he's uh, excited to, um, to make even more change and accelerate things. And there's some other familiar faces, let's just say, in the room, who I respect very much, and I expect are taking this very much to heart and wanna see, uh, and have been part of some of the changes already made. So I, th I think there's some good news. I don't want, you know, these reports and these investigations are by design supposed to be just a big pile of, of bad news. And I know, you know, and, and, and do not take this as a dig on the media by any stretch of the imagination, but that bad news is gonna be the headline tomorrow. Uh, but I do hope that part of that includes an acknowledgement of much of the change that's happened, which, which I think is, a, is very important to put into context. Um, by way of background, for those that don't know, I think, David, you know this, and, and, maybe, and maybe even Deputy Mayor James knows this. Uh, when I was in the military, when we deployed, we, I, was I was an artillery enlisted Marine, but we deployed as provisional military police in order to do a corrections job. This was post Abu Ghraib, which everybody remembers how great that was for the military, uh, which also came down to leadership, supervision, and a bunch of the exact same things that you're citing right now, which the final report gave us the breakdown of, of why that, that site went completely out of control and ended up with abuse of inmates and things like this. Um, but it was post Abu Ghraib, and I remember my, for those that don't know, an artillery unit's battery gunnery sergeant, or battery gunny as we call them, is arguably the second highest enlisted person in the unit. And he told us before we deployed, there were three different jobs we might have had before we deployed. And he said, the one we don't want is running the corrections facility because it's boring, boring, routine work. The other jobs are gonna be military police, uh, excuse me, uh, military training teams, uh, convoy security, and a few other things. And we ended up getting assigned that job. And he was right. It is, for those that have never done it, it can be shockingly boring work because if it's going right, it's the same thing every day, right? I, I, just, I can, to this day, remember the daily process, 06, lights on, 0615, you know, chow, 0630, secure chow, 0645, right, head call, et cetera, right? Um, but that discipline and routine, um, which, includes, the in, in modern times and stateside, facilities and technology is what makes it a safe environment for everybody. Um, the reason for all that boringness was the moment that anything deviated from the plan of the day, it was so glaringly obvious because we were so programmed to have the standard uh, things happen that it like jumped off the page and everybody knew, okay, we have to react to what's going on. And to your point, I don't see that we have particularly a facility that can, um, that can handle that. And I'm gonna get back to facilities in a second. Let me address sexual harassment real quick. As I said, we deployed as provisional military police. We were a combat arms MOS in, in the Marine Corps. Tanks, artillery, and infantry don't have uh, women assigned to them or at least at that time, um, we, had, we were augmented uh, by uh, female Marines when we deployed because we were doing a different job. And we, I'm not saying we were perfect, there were a few disciplinary problems, but if the kind of sexual harassment and things that you're talking about, now we were in a combat zone, 
away from our families, working 12-hour shifts every day, seven days a week for six months straight. There was no breaks. There was no weekends off. There was nothing. And if I knew a Marine was doing half of what you were talking about, they would have been yanked up so fast, disciplined so quickly, lost pay, broken down, and it would have been clear to everybody that that's totally unacceptable. So whatever we need to do from a training perspective to reject that culture of sexual harassment and get back to a state of professionalism, it's not only going to, and this is not just a male-female thing, this is not just creating an environment where female corrections officers feel more safe. It's an environment where, you know, I wouldn't have felt comfortable, right, if that's how my unit was treating that, right? I would have been sickened and rejected and been like, I don't, I don't want to work here, right? So we're losing, I'm sure, uh, excellent male and female corrections officers because uh, of those, again, to your point, it, it's not everybody, it's going to be a handful, but if we don't discipline them and discipline them quickly, um, then, then we're going to, the, then the recruiting issues is not just going to be about money, uh, it's going to be about culture, right? Um, before I wrap up on facilities, as far as supervision, can you talk about what your report has come up with or what you saw? Because we've seen this with, with some of the observations that have come out of some of the reporting in LMPD, whether it was overtime pay or some other things, was related to supervision and whether or not what I'll call, you know, line level, and I'm, I'm not sure of the rank structure and corrections and how they do it. I know how we did it in the Corps, but the one, the, the managers that are at the lowest possible level doing the most tactical supervision, do they have the tools, training, and support to be, to be effective tactical leaders? And, and does your report address that in any way? Uh, that's an excellent question. The Every time someone's promoted in, in, in corrections, it's sergeant, lieutenant, captain, major. Um, there's been a long period of time where the, or a period of time where the sergeants, when they're promoted, have not been receiving training. And same way with lieutenants and captains. Uh, most recently, when I was at the training academy, I was told that they reinstituted a, 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 a day and a half or two day program for sergeants. And I think that's very critical. And I think that's a, a, a great question because each, each step up the, the, the rung, you're doing different things and you have different responsibilities and what you may have done when you were working on the floor uh, every day with people is different when you get up to in the upper echelon of an organization. So uh, I've suggested that there be more training when you're promoted and I think it, just because, you, like I said, you're a sergeant, you've been doing that job, being a lieutenant or captain is different than being a sergeant, and I think you need additional training each time that you progress in this organization. So, totally agree. Great, thank you. Uh, and Madam Chairwoman, last question slash commentary on facilities. Do you believe there's any, pot let's just say we take all your recommendations, SANS facilities, and, we, and we, we try to address all of them, except we're still in this jail. Is there any possible way that that results in the kind of outcomes we should be looking for as far as a safe environment for inmates, a safe environment for our employees, um, one that's conducive to uh, getting the job done properly, reducing risk, reducing risk related to um, potentially Department of Justice or other lawsuits. It, it, do you see any methodology that we get there without addressing the facility? I really don't. I think uh, you you need to, at a minimum, gut the current facility, but you can't add windows to the basement cells or the basement right. facility. And so much of the or, uh, the institution doesn't have access to outside lighting, uh, fresh air. Um, you know, many, many jails have uh, outdoor recreation areas where you can go out and uh, smell smell some fresh air, get some sunlight. And, and I know there's a part of the community or society that thinks, hey, they violated the law, they get what they get. But again, we have to be humane to people, they're human beings, but also giving them uh, that outdoor recreation time burns up energy, puts them in a better mood so when they come back in, the corrections officers aren't faced with, with people that are ready to go, go into battle. And I've talked to other facilities uh, where they do have more resources to do those things, and that's exactly what they told me. They said, you know what, 
we let the people you know, do these different things. And, and one thing in, in particular, and I, I think, again, uh, Director Collins is going to implement that, many jails give the inmates notebooks. It gives them access to reading material, uh, and you can control what they do. But again, if you don't keep people, their minds busy, and their bodies busy, and they burn up energy, you're going to have problems throughout an institution. I think that's part of what's going on here as well. I'll just wrap up by saying, uh, I, we have failed. It, uh, glad to take responsibility for this in my four years uh, here. Uh, I've only recently started focusing on this when, when we started running into these issues. Uh, but we have failed this. Uh, we have failed the officers and the staff that work there. We failed uh, the inmates that are housed there, and we failed the community by doing so. I'm not exactly, you know, Mr. Soft on crime over here. Uh, but to your point, uh, I absolutely refuse uh, con to continue putting people into these conditions uh, and expect better results. So, I, I, you know, I hope that uh, my colleagues and I, we can partner together to figure out a methodology. And I know, look, you know, I know there's people listening to this right now that, that interpret discussing facilities as we want more, we want a bigger jail so we can put more people into it. And I'm familiar with the studies and the, and the information that seems to indicate that tends to happen. Uh, first of all, that tends to happen when jurisdictions use their facilities as a revenue generating opportunity. I have zero interest in doing that. Matter of fact, I'd be fine with rejecting taking any other inmates from other jurisdictions if we had the legal authority to do that so that we can just focus on Jefferson County, right? Um, so I'm not interested in making it larger. I'm interested in making it work. And uh, being a facility that, is, that people want to work in, that people that, the people that work there can be effective when they work in there, and that is safe for the people uh, that are going to be housed there. Uh, and and I'm, it's going to be my, uh, one of my sole objectives through the bu this budget cycle, the next several budget cycles, uh, to get there. But uh, really appreciate your incredibly detailed work on this. Um, and uh, I think we should all uh, really seriously consider, if we don't take serious action coming out of this report, what this could mean for this community moving forward. And thank you very much, Madam Chair. Thank you. Uh, Councilwoman Purvis. Finally, um, Ms. Byers, thank you for being here, and, and I commend uh, Director Collins and doing all of what he's trying to do, to do uh, in moving things forward uh, and in a better direction. I, I just wanted to ask you, um, would you agree with saying that this troubling culture became the norm prior to Director Collins coming on board? Uh, absolutely. I, I think Director Collins has, has tried in the short time he's been there to start changing the culture. So I, I, I totally agree that this existed before he came on board as the leader of the uh, corrections department. Okay, thank you so much. And this is very sad. Um, we as a body, we, we were not comfortable with the things that we were learning, but it's just so sad to know that there was leadership there that accepted this behavior, overlooked this behavior, uh, and I hope didn't uh, encourage this culture, but it's very, very troubling to know uh, that this has taken place. Thank you so much for your time, and I look forward to hearing from you when you come back again. Thank you. Have a great evening. Thank you. Um, Councilman Sam. Thank you, Madam Chair. Uh, could you tell me what the population of the jail is, how many bed spaces, and how much of the population, what's the percentage of homelessness, homeless people? So uh, the population fluctuates. I think they're around 1,400 right now. And as I said, uh, the many of the cells, uh, or let me say, many of the inmates live in a, what's called a dorm space where they have rolls of bunk beds. And everyone that I went to uh, had like 20 bunks, but 30 plus people in it. So if you've got, a, a, again, a dorm that holds 30 people, 
What are you going to do with the, excuse me, 20 people? What are you going to do with the extra 15, 20 people? Well, you put them on the floor. And again, not only is that not humane, but it uh, is pre precipitates or breeds problems. And, and I'll, I'll tell you one anecdote, a story that occurred to me. As I mentioned, I went to speak to the inmates. And how I did it is I went to one of those dorms and, and I went in there by myself. I uh, actually had uh, Dr. Lederman went with me, but it was, we didn't have any corrections officers in there. I wasn't wearing my gun that day. And we sat down, and I was at a, like a bench table, and I was getting myself situated, and my knee bumped into something. I thought, what in the world? I hit the, the metal post on this uh, bench, and I looked under there. No, it was a guy in one of these, what they call boats on the floor. He was sleeping right beneath me. And so I was watching the, 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 what goes on in here or in the uh, dorm, and you got people on the floor sleeping and other inmates walking over them. And so I, that's a kind of a roundabout way to answer your question. We got 1,400 people, but we don't have space for 1,400 people. And other instances where we need like a, a individual cell, like uh, Miss. Dunbar, who hung herself in an attorney-client booth, they didn't have a, a jail cell for her that night. So why didn't they have a jail cell for her? Because they had overcrowding. And so, you know, the number of people is a problem. And, and to, I think, Councilman Piagettini's, Piagettini's point, we, we don't want to incarcerate everyone but many times, there really isn't any option. Uh, you know, I know so many policemen in town, they tell me stories about, we get a call to a restaurant, somebody's swinging a pole or a knife, you know, threatening customers in the restaurant. You can't tell that person, go outside and have a good day. You need to do something with them. And as I articulated earlier, in the old days, you could take them to a mental health facility. Now, the jails have become mental health facilities. And as I said, there are at least 20% of the population here and in many facilities across the country that house mental health patients. Thank you, and I wanted to thank Director Collins for everything you're doing and we've, uh, everything we do, anything we do to help you, we will. Thank you. Councilwoman Chapel. I just wanted to make a comment that um, when the new council people were brought on, many of us were invited um, excluding the new positions of three, six, and eight, um, were invited to uh, the jail by Director Collins to take a tour. And it was very, um, it was a very somber day for all of us touring that facility. It was my first time inside. Um, it was very apparent how much Director Collins um, cares about his job and doing it well um, and making sure that our jail is the best that it can. But through that tour, it was, very apparent, um, the lack of cleanliness, um, lack of natural light, uh, lack of common spaces, supervision, and just basic human dignity. And I, our jail is simply not working for us, not to mention it's an old office building that's structurally not sound enough to hold all of the plexiglass and steel that's in it. Um, but I, I, I just wanted to say that I, I appreciated that opportunity to take a tour of the jail. Um, and I, I really look forward to working on these issues with you all. Um, and we need to make sure that these conditions are humane and we're doing the best that we can to support the programming in the jail to prevent recidivism. So thank you. I don't see anyone else in the queue. Is there uh, anyone else that wants to speak before we uh, close? Madam Chair, could I yes, uh, please. make a comment? Um, I want to reiterate, and again, Councilman Piagettini touched on it. Director Collins and his staff have done an excellent job, and the, I had a short term to be able to present it, present information. And of course, I, I focused on what I thought were some of the more egregious matters, and matters that really reading it in, in a report doesn't do justice. So uh, there are so many employees that I encountered on my visits who are dedicated, hardworking, diligent people, and I don't want to denigrate or, or paint them with a broad brush. 
but there are some people, and there is a culture that needs to be uh, have a paradigm shift. So uh, again, I, I don't want to be besmirch all the wonderful corrections people that are working hard. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate you being here today. Um, and if there are no other questions, um, we are adjourned. Thank you.